Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've been in the game obviously long enough to know there are ebbs and flows to every season, but when you get into a stretch like this where the, the team is struggling, what tends to be the key to, to snapping out of it as a group? Play better. You know, nobody wants to hear it. There's, there's plenty of things to grab on, and you know I understand everybody's job is pointing to reasons why they perceive it. So is mine, right? So uh, uh, just play better. You control it. You know we control it. It's not like there's some outside element. Just play better. You know, it's not really quite as difficult as some people may perceive it. Whatever you know, it's up to us to identify some of those things and get better at it and get back to things we do well and have done. Not only last season, but this season. Why? Well, no, I. No, they're all somebody's son, and on a given night, they're they're very good. Whether it be, you know, we've all seen, we've seen LaCasey pitch well. He's pitching on three days rest. We were going to take him to about 70 a day. He kept us in the game. Um, we know guys like Peterson and McGill are capable of pitching well. We know Max and and uh, Justin and you know Quintana at some point, and Kras goes around the corner and. You know, guys are getting opportunity. No, I, I trust the track record. Obviously, there's a little different game going on that we're all playing between the lines this year, so I think our guys will make the adjustments to that. Another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, May the 7th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network. And you can also check me out on Instagram, Talking Mets No G. And also want to welcome in the good folks from RisingApple.com. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. And I know, I know, you guys, you have your pitchforks out. You have your torches out. You want a sacrificial lamb. You want me to come on and tar and feather somebody. And if I don't, you got your pitchforks out for me saying you're Pollyannish, you know, you're going to sit around here, Mike, and, and talk to me about the getting to know you phase, and it's early, and you're going to talk the company line just like what Buck has talked about, Billy Epler's talked about, you heard some of the players in the postgame, and 
just calm down for a second. There won't be a sacrificial lamb because that's not what we do here, number one. But I will tell you, there won't be a Pollyannish, the sky isn't falling, everything's going to be all right. Because what we're going to talk about today is where we think this season is going and perhaps how, even in a disappointing season, not only is this necessary, it's critically important for this team uh for them to be competitive going forward, especially as you look at their roster in the next couple of years. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Matt Harvey retired. I'll do a little ode to Matt Harvey. Interesting perspective about Harvey and that group of pitchers and how we may not see something like that again. And I'm sure we'll get into some other stuff as I round out the show. Back back on Sunday. Mets off tomorrow, but back on Sunday. Wanted to come to you tonight after the Mets lost two of three of the Rockies. And another ugly performance by the starting pitching. But first, let's talk to the listeners here in New Jersey and Connecticut. I have an awesome limited-time promo for new DraftKings users. Deposit and place a $5 and more wager on any sport to get $150 instantly added to your account and bonus bets, win or lose. All you have to do is use our code TALKINGMETS, no G, to sign up and redeem. Using our code TalkingMetsNoG is a great way to support this podcast. So if you don't yet have a DraftKings account and you're in New Jersey and Connecticut, do us a solid and sign up with code TalkingMets and place that first bet. New customers only, 21 and over, and physically present in New Jersey or Connecticut. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER-NJ or 888-789-7777 in Connecticut. Valid one offer per customer. Minimum $5 deposit and $5 wager required. Rewards issued at non-withdrawable bonus bet and expire seven days after being awarded. See full terms at DraftKings.com. Again, if you have a gambling problem in New Jersey, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Connecticut, 888-789-7777. Thank you again for supporting Talking Mets and supporting some of our sponsors. So let's get right to it here because that's why you're here. You're not here to place a bet. You're here to talk or listen to me talk Mets. And the theme of the show is the anatomy of 500 because you heard Buck and you heard him talk about the pitching staff and you guys know what's going on here. I mean, you you don't have to go to fan graphs. I did. I mean, it's like a horror movie. You don't want to put your hands over your eyes. It ain't one of those funny horror movies like Scream. It's one of those gory, ugly horror movies. When I go to fan graphs and there is no scenario even if there was some reasonable decline, that I thought here on May 7th, just six weeks or so into the season, that we would be talking about the Mets starting pitching in the same vein as the Oakland Athletics. I mean, Mets were in Oakland a couple of weeks ago. Did you ever see a worse pitching performance? And here it is. The Mets are mirroring it. And what's been funny about this team over the last six or seven years is that in seasons that have gotten... I guess started out with some hope, but became disappointing. I thought of 2017, 2018, 2019, you know, even 2020, the pandemic season that comes to mind. There was some kind of outlier performance by one aspect of the team that ruined the whole year. Like 17, there was a lot of injuries to the rotation. Uh, in 18, they had a horrible offensive performance until they brought up Jeff McNeil and 
guys started to round into form later in the season. In June, they were like at the 62 Mets level of scoring. They were scoring a couple of runs a game. It was awful. Uh, 2019, we know what happened with the bullpen with Diaz and how the Mets got a 1962 level performance out of the bullpen that cost them a chance to make the playoffs. 2020, the rotation fell apart. Stroman opts out because of COVID. Syndergaard gets, you know, Tommy John, and we all know what happened there. So at different points over the last five or six years, we've seen this movie play out here as Mets fans. You have a team that's built what you think to make the postseason and make a postseason run, especially after last year's 100 wins. And a a major aspect of the team not only disappoints, but completely falls off the cliff. So you have to start to look at this team. And I haven't even gotten to Scherzer, his decline, where's the fastball. Are we seeing what we feared, what I talked about? If you go back to October and you listen to my post game after game one against the Padres when Scherzer had absolutely nothing, set the tone for that short series, a bad tone, and away you go, and the Mets are down one zip, and they wound up losing the series in three. Are we seeing the decline of Scherzer? Before we even get to that, you have to start to be honest about even a Scherzer-Verlander that rounds themselves out into what you would expect with these older pitchers. You know, six innings, a couple of runs. You know, maybe not Cy Young Award, but certainly resemble on most nights a top-of-the-rotation force. Even with that, when you're looking at Senga and Lucchese and McGill and Peterson and, and pitchers of that ilk and all of them struggling to get through three or four innings, all of them walking, I mean, I don't know if you want to blame driveline here. I was cautious about the whole driveline and the Mets jumping into driveline. But their, their, their walks have skyrocketed. They go from walking the least amount of batters as a team a year ago to walking some of the most. And if you look, and we'll get into this as the show goes on, you start to look at some of their top pitching prospects in the organization, the Dominic Hamels, the Blade Tidwells. You know, these guys are walking five, six batters per nine innings. You go up and down the organization. It's scary. I mean, I don't want to belabor that point, but that's what's going on. So when you start to look at the team right now with how bad the starting pitching is, and even if it rounds itself into form, I'm not really sure you're going to see the kind of performance that you got a year ago where you got starters that went six and gave you six solid innings, sometimes into the seventh. You had a dominant, and you don't have that this year. Even with Robertson pitching well, he's not Diaz. You have your closer, but he's not dominant. He's the next tick below. And then you have to figure out, this is where the team was built, figure out about four to six outs. That's not the case anymore. I mean, the bullpen's pitching 45% of the innings. It's almost a one-to-one ratio in innings between starters and bullpen. I mean, it was an amazing stat I saw come down over Twitter this past, uh, you know, a couple hours ago. Mets have, uh, the starters almost 70% of the time have not made it into the fifth inning. It's amazing. These are the kind of numbers you're seeing. These are ugly, awful numbers, and no team. I don't care if you have the offense of the Atlanta Braves or the Tampa Bay Rays who are averaging over six runs a game, or you know, you're the Mets who are a offense largely component-driven, largely one that likes to grind down pitchers, make contact, and score just enough. You're not going to win with that kind of starting pitching. A good bullpen, even some of the shuttle guys haven't been awful, like the Yakabonuses, who was awful today. But the problem now is you're using these guys so much, they're getting burned to a crisp. Of course they're going to get scorched. 
So you're taking a good bullpen that has been really good through the first month or so, and inevitably you're going to make it a bad bullpen because of overuse. Something that Buck did a really good job last year with, one of the best bullpen-managed seasons I've ever seen, and even a maestro like Buck when it comes to managing a bullpen is going to struggle when you have starters going three innings every night. It's just it, There's not enough shuttling you can do to make up for that. Offensively, yes. Uh, you know, you can make, you know, I've made the argument that it's not the problem offense. And you continue to see that. You have some component players like Canna, Vogelback, not doing what you expected of them, even an average season. They're significantly below average, although Vogelback is starting to come around. Then the real concern is maybe you were penciling in some regression with Marte. Age, health, maybe he was a little over-indexed last year, his first year in New York. But when you start to look at how slow he is and bunting with runners in scoring position, you have to wonder, similar to Scherzer, the second tier, the second tier of very good players, not your core, not your Lindor, your Nimomi, your McNeils, but Marte was that next tier, him having this huge regression, below league average player, that's you know something you couldn't really bank on at this point. So the offense has... Uh, you know, always you know uh, potential brownouts. I mean, they've been shut out six times, and you could hang on to these resumes, and you could talk like Buck is talking about how they have confidence. There's nothing else they can do because what you guys all want is a shakeup and a sacrificial lamb. I've seen all sorts of things, and I haven't even listened to talk radio. I'm using Twitter. Fire Billy Epler. Fire Buck. Uh, you know, worst team money can buy. Uh, you know, so on and so forth. And you want some, you're you're in pain. And let's face it, as a Mets fan, you've been in pain now since early January. This whole season and the challenges of this season hit you right in the face right after New Year when Carlos Carrasco's physical failed and the Mets moved on from him. That was the first sign that, hey, this ain't going to be the perfect yellow brick road. And then Diaz goes down. And and although none of those things anecdotally have any statistical bearing on why the Mets have the worst starting pitching in the National League and maybe the whole sport and are resembling from the starting pitching point of their team, the 62 Mets, none of that has statistical connections. But I think it's almost like a pall over the organization that went into spring training. And I talked about this in the offseason. I talked about how difficult – living up to expectations was going to be about how the organization has this weight on its shoulder. Some of you don't agree with that, but it's true. And when you have expectations, Eric Chavez talked about it in the offseason on a podcast. When you when not only have expectations, now you're coming off a season where you were one of the elite clubs in the, in the business. Your window is very small to win it all with this group because of the age of some of the veterans. The pressure amplifies. So any kind of crack in the armor, any kind of crack in the foundation – is you know something that you have to work that much harder along with the pressure to overcome. And it, it could be overwhelming for a team. And some of these guys may be experiencing the situation for the first time. I mean, I've talked about it. Big contract for Nimmo. I mean, he's performing well. McNeil, big contract. Pete trying to get a contract. For Lander and Scherzer trying to get the last ounces of sunshine out of their elite bodies. There's a lot for this team to figure out during these first 60 games or so. The problem here is using the term, it's just early. 
is probably not something that we could sit here and just hang our hat on. I'm not here to give a sacrificial lamb. Billy Epler's not getting fired. Steve Cohen hired him and had him bring him all his own people, building up the organization from top to bottom. You fire him now, you're ripping this team apart again, and you're spiraling it into chaos again. You've just settled this organization after uh, Sandy to Brody Van Wagenen uh, to Zach Scott and Sandy and the whole nonsense that went through with the Beltron and Jared Porter and all that stuff. I don't have to go through the timeline. I mean, the the every offseason, it seemed like, until this past offseason when we actually talked about roster building, we were figuring out who the manager was going to be, who the GM was going to be, who the owner was going to be. You can't, you know, a good owner, a good manager, a good business person doesn't rip up their organization, that first sign of harm. They figure out what's going on. Where do they go wrong? You know, there's a lot of reasons. You know, they have all these analytics guys and gals in the the lab. Maybe they should have looked at some of this stuff. But we're not going to throw scapegoats. We're not going to go that route. But we can't just sit here and say, well, it's early. Let's sit back. They're going to play to the back of their baseball card or the front of their baseball reference page because I'm not so sure that's going to happen. And even if they do, maybe we've miscalculated how good this team is. Off the bat, and I started to prepare you for this last week after the Braves series, and I'm pretty convinced of it. This is not a team that's going to be able to get their stuff together to win a division. I'm pretty convinced of that. I'm I'm confident in saying that on May 7th. This is a wild card, maybe sneak in the wild card team that's going to have to get hot and probably will resemble more the Philadelphia Phillies of last year than they will the Atlanta Braves or the New York Mets of 2023. And let's also face it, you know, I can hear all the stories about what the Phillies did and what the Nats did when they won the championship in 2019. And heck, look across town. Look at some of those Yankees teams from, you know, post 2000. Some of them got off to awful starts. And they had it's funny because Billy Epler comes from that tree. You see some of the similarities to the decisions the Yankees made post 2000 with how they signed Kevin Brown and Randy Johnson and how those veterans didn't perform. Now, Scherzer hasn't been that level, and we don't know about Verlander, but you can see what happens when you start to patch things up with Hall of Famers or near Hall of Famers and maybe you're getting the last juice out of them. It could go off the cliff. I talked about it last last fall. Tom Glavin wins 300 games. Tom Glavin the year before was a big part of why the Mets, when their pitching staff, the 06 Mets pitching staff, was decimated. I mean, they got starts from Alay Solar, Jose Lima, Jeremy Gonzalez, the late Jeremy Gonzalez. I mean, look at who started games for the 2006 Mets when Pedro and uh, El Duque went down. And, you know, who would have had... Oliver Perez and John Main on their bingo cards. But, you know, do the Mets have their Oliver Perez and John Main that could come up this year? I don't think they're going to get it from the minor leagues. Dylan Bundy's given up like 12 home runs in 12 innings. In AAA, he's certainly not resembling John Main or Ali Perez. I mean, is there an El Duque they can export? You know, import, I should say, from another team? Well, maybe that's Quintana. But he's going to be away a while. And, you know, I'm not really ready to say a guy that could be back in July It's going to miss half the season. It's going to come in and be who they expected him to be. They really have no choice. I mean, that's the thing. They really have no choice. So the more you look at 
where the starting pitching is and how far it has to come and the lack of Diaz in the bullpen and the strain that the bullpen is going to be under because of the rotation and the loss of Diaz downgrades that bullpen anymore. You look at the team that has the bones and the look and the feel, despite the back of the base, the baseball card or the front of the baseball reference page, as a 500 team. I know a 500 team when I see it. Now, this could get uglier than 500. It's been uglier than 500 last couple of weeks. But that's what 500 teams do. They go 7-3 and three on the West Coast. Then they come home and they lose um, to the Braves and the Rockies, and they go to Detroit and get swept because they have these, these periods. Now, the— you could bring up the Nats, you could bring up the Phillies, you could talk all about that, but those teams had something that this team right now we can't say they have. Elite one, two, and to a certain degree with the Phillies and and the Nats, a number three starter. Those teams won, even though they had shaky bullpen and maybe they had brownouts on offense. They won because they had three really, really good starters, two elite ones. Nola, Wheeler, Scherzer of 2019, Patrick Corbin. Steven Strasburg. You got the last juice out of Strasburg there. So to say you could just sit back and evoke history, you know, the Mets, if they're going to evoke history, they need something like the 2005 Yankees who picked up Sean Chacon and Aaron Small and made a run to the postseason. Lost, but made a run to the postseason. Unlikely. Think about that. You know, and there, but but and also when you look at those Yankees teams that overcame some of the stuff, they had a ton of offense. They was like slow pitch softball with that team. Mets don't have that kind of offense. So where do you go? So you're like, Mike, you're telling me they're 500. You're telling me that I can't yell and scream and get a scapegoat. So what do you want me to do? Where do you want this thing to go? And the word is, and it's the one word you don't want to hear, is patience. And I'm not telling you to be patient because I'm telling you everything's going to be okay. What I'm telling you is right now you want to shake up, and a lot of you guys want Vientos up, more, you know, Mauricio, whatever. You know, the first thing is let's fire Buck, let's fire Epler, let's bring up the kids. Mauricio and Vientos are not going to solve your problem. Last I looked, neither one of them could give them six innings, two runs. That's what this team needs. And even if they come up and hit, and the Mets go from averaging four and a half runs a game to 4.8, maybe they touch five with those guys if they're as good as they've been in AAA in the big leagues. That's still not going to make up for the fact that you are staring at a rotation that is 29th out of 30th in baseball, over five runs a game, and can't get five innings, which trickles into the bullpen getting torched. Vientos and Mauricio are not going to solve that. Now, if that's the reality, because they have very few options, the Mets right now, you're, you know, all you could do is go in and get the Dylan Bundys of the world to plug in. David Peterson, who's struggling down in AAA. Even if you get Scherzer and Verlander back on track, and I have a feeling that Verlander's more likely to be consistently Verlander while Scherzer figures out his body, and I think the pitch clock, and let's face it, that's a real big part of something that we didn't anticipate. Maybe the pitch clock is impacting key members of this team. I think it might be affecting Canada up there at the plate. could be affecting Scherzer in a different way. It, It definitely impacted Carrasco. Maybe the athleticism of a faster-paced game wasn't factored in when they brought back some of these veterans. You know, maybe it's affecting a Marte who's recovering from double hernia surgery. So there's a lot of things that we all 
Mets front office certainly couldn't figure out, but as well as us on this show, figure out as part of our assessment of this team going in. So maybe they're more where they need to be. Now, I don't think if they get Scherzer and Verlander uh, going that you know they're going to be a 95-loss team, a 90-loss team, because they're playing like a 90-plus-loss team. They remind me an awful lot of those pandemic Mets that lost all their pitching. You know, with Stroman opting out and everything, and, and we know where, where that small sample size left. I mean, that was a team that was in that 60-game season, was on pace if there was a regular season, to probably lose about 90, 95 games. And that's ugly. Um, So I don't think that those guys coming back, the Mets will go that route, will, will, go, will result in that kind of outcome. But I don't know, even in the best-case scenario, you're looking at a team that's more right now than 85, 86, 87, 88. Now, maybe that sneaks you into a wild card, but and it gets you into a tournament, and... You see where that goes. But the conversation the rest of this year, the best conversation I could see us having, and I hate to say this so early in the season, but I know the bones and the anatomy of what I'm seeing here is, you know, we'll have some fun and and get into a wild card and see what happened. The conversation that we had last year about winning a division and building a team up to be uh, one of the top four or five teams that legitimately can win a championship, that conversation I can't see us having. At any point in the regular season. Not anymore. Not after what we've seen and where they've at, you know, been at the last six weeks and the injuries they've suffered and the loss of a Diaz and things like that. But even if they don't make the playoffs or they play a meandering 500 brand of baseball, I think it's important for the Mets to figure out what they have in the system that can contribute and be a part of this roster immediately. Because, you know, you go and you look and you say, okay, I don't see Cohen, who's looking to build this beautiful, like, you know, destination around the ballpark, hungry to win, got a taste of success last year, is all of a sudden going to turn around, fire Billy Epler, or keep Billy Epler, and say, we're going to tear this thing down for three years, trade McNeil, trade Alonzo, what are we going to do with Lindor, maybe somebody will take the contract, and let's just, you know, rip this thing apart. I don't see that happening. What I do see the Mets doing is, as you go and you look at the roster and you see what kind of money they have invested, money they also have to invest if they want to keep Pete Alonso and give him a big contract, you're going to need some cost-controlled components of this team, and you are not going to get it from the pitching staff. I mean, even if Mike Vazel, Dominic Hamill, or Blade Tidwell develop and start to show better command, uh, Vazel's the only one that seems to have the kind of numbers I look I look at that are good. You know, low walk rate, high strikeout rate. But is he a guy that's going to get torched with contact in the big leagues? We'll see. We don't know. But all those guys, based on reports, and that's all they are, reports. We heard the same reports about Jacob DeGrom, DeGrom and we saw where that went. Um, is that they're mid to back end of the rotation pitchers. And look, at this point, you take them. You take them. But... Championship teams have top-of-the-rotation guys. And that was what Jacob deGrom and Scherzer were. That's what Jake and Wheeler and Syndergaard before he got hurt were. That's what Scherzer and Verlander were supposed to be. And without that, even with these guys developing, it still leaves that hole. And that's going to be something the Mets right now, unless there is, you know, we don't know who they're going to draft this year and obviously in the future, but... I don't see anybody on the horizon that fits what you saw with a Harvey or a Syndergaard or a DeGrom 
or if you go back to the 80s, a Sid Fernandez or a Doc or a Darling. I don't see, at least from the reports, I'm not a scout, those kind of guys on the horizon. So the Mets are going to have to pay for them, whether that means importing Otani or Urias from uh, from the Dodgers or Nola from the Phillies. I'm just throwing names out there. We all know that it's going to be, at the very least, the early part of the offseason will be the winter of Otani. We know that. And it might be the spring, or the summer of Otani if they fall out of it and the you know, Mets still are meandering around. Who knows? I wouldn't go that route. Because you're going to need cost-controlled components of this team. And where it could come right now is on the offensive side. With you know, At this point, look, Alvarez and Beatty. Beatty's shown me he's ready to hit here at the big league level. I asked him to show that he could play defense and hit. He's done both of those things. And now he's in the middle of the order, so he's starting to make his graduation a little quicker. Alvarez, I've been so disappointed in Tom, Tomas Nito. His defense has been awful this year. His offense is worse than ever. At this point, between the, the solid framing that Alvarez has, and it seems like he's figuring out his rapport with the pitchers. I mean, Max Scherzer in that article at Newsday, uh, you know, when Tim Healy spoke to Max Scherzer a couple of weeks ago, compared his work ethic to Juan Soto. Can't argue with that. That's a very encouraging thing. And you've seen Alvarez get better. And the promise of the bat, you know, if Alvarez can catch at an average to above average rate and work with a staff, his bat, even if he's not the elite Mike Piazza-type power hitter that everybody projects, he's worth it behind the plate. And then you got Navarez comes back, and that's a better backup, a better tandem with Alvarez than the weak-hitting Nito. So it'll be interesting what happens when Navarez comes back and how that plays out. But, you know, eventually, yes, as you get deeper in the season, to me, if you're a 500 team or a team that's just chugging a little bit above, you could do that with Vientos as your DH. And I want Mauricio to develop. I want him to learn second base. I'd love him to maybe learn the outfield. Versatility would be huge for a guy like that because it could keep him relevant around the diamond and and provide uh you know, the Mets, because you, you have to carry 13 pitchers, you don't have that many guys on the bench anymore, and guys who are versatile will make it a hell of a lot easier for you to fill out your bench. So maybe you don't need a Luis Guillerme who's primarily a defensive type of player. You know, Mauricio could replace him in some way, shape, or form because his bat is better. You want to get that out of a season. So even if you make the playoffs as a wild card, you could still accomplish those things. It would require maybe moving Escobar or... DFAing Escobar, releasing him. You know, Vogelback, everybody wants to make him kind of like the scapegoat because he's fat. He hasn't hit him with power. But, I mean, Vogelback, for all his limitations, really is, you know, against right-handed pitching, is doing what you expected him to do. He's just not hitting him with power. So maybe you wind up going out and trading him at some point, and you kind of do the reverse of what happened last year. You trade him for a bullpen arm or for some useful piece that could round out your roster, just like the Mets gave up a Colin Holderman for Vogelback. So the season is not going to be a loss if the Mets use it as a way to continue to win as much as they can without harming the future. Now, going out and trying to make a rash decision, trading, let's say, for Otani or a star like that, giving away assets, that's a foolish way to try to address a team that may just not have it, that has the anatomy of a 500 team. But sitting back, developing those those young players. So you could have cost-effective on the offensive side. I mean, you've got Jet Williams in the minor leagues and Kevin Parada. I mean, you've got names in the pipeline that 
even without a Pete Crow Armstrong, who they traded for Baez, and, the, and Kelnick, who seems to be figuring some things out out in Seattle, without those blue chippers that were in the organization, you still have a ton of positional uh, meat and potatoes. The Mets have done an incredibly good job with on the you know developing the offensive side. They're not going to have to go out like they have with the pitching staff and go and sign, um, you know, a bunch of bats. You know what they did a couple of winners ago with getting in Marte and Canna. They may not have to do that with some of the young bats coming up the pipeline, and that helps for them to reallocate those resources so that they can figure out this pitching staff because pitching is expensive. And you thought of McGill and Peterson after last year might be able to give you for a pretty cost-effective uh, way some back in the rotation, six innings, three runs. You're not even getting that. You can't even get six innings, three runs out of these guys. It's bad. And I know everyone says, well, look at Senga. Senga was better on Friday. His ball to strike rate was still 50-50. Yeah, I get the ghost fork. But if you're not ahead of the count, the ghost fork doesn't matter. The other part of walking all these guys and falling behind is, you know, that's where the, the, the amount of gopher balls, they give up more than one home run per game. It's like home run derby. I mean, all bad things that you get from bad pitching, all the, the stuff the Mets did to teams, especially bad pitching teams last year, they are now having done to them because they have bad pitching. They have bad starting pitching. The wheels have fallen off here. So, and, you know, I got to find out, you know, I got to ask, are they in a position where they can develop pitching? Because they haven't developed McGill. They haven't developed Peterson. Uh, we have no idea what the Hamels and the Vazels and the Tidwells are. We know that the walk rate on a couple of these guys is insane. So I don't care how good their numbers are in Binghamton. You walk in five plus batters per nine innings, you are not going to win at the big league level. You're going to be bad. You're going to be back of the rotation bad or in and out of the rotation bad, or 4A level bad. I'm sorry. I don't care what prospect list you're ranked high on. Not going to matter. And you can't sit around and wait for Aaron Small and Sean Chacon because, you know, they usually that usually doesn't happen. And what the Mets did in 06 with some of their magic where they stumbled upon Maine and Perez, not common. So you, you could talk about the front of the baseball reference page and we could evoke history and say, well, the Nats did this, the Yankees have done that, the Phillies did that. Let's talk reality. The Mets have a bad starting rotation, an historically bad 62 Mets level starting rotation. The type of starting rotation, I and I'll throw the pandemic season out of the equation, we haven't seen in a long, long time. And after the break, we'll talk about Matt Harvey and we'll talk about how what we saw with Harvey and what we saw with those guys was so special because it's hard to recreate. It's hard to build a pitching staff. So many teams have failed over the years. The Mets have been blessed going all the way back to 1969. So here's what my message is. There's no yelling and screaming and sacrificial lambs. That's not how good organizations are run. Unfortunately, there's nothing you can do to make things better right now because the thing that's broken, they don't have anybody to come up and make it better. And Mark Vientos and Mauricio are not going to do that. Eventually, those guys will get a shot if this thing continues to hover in the bandwidth where it is right now. And they will. And it doesn't matter if it's today or a month from now or All-Star break because they'll get it. And they're more about 2023, in my opinion, 
than anything they could do in 2022. That's my that's my feeling. They're about 2023. And you will see them. At least Vientos, I believe you will see. And you just have to sit back, and you may not want to watch this, and you may want to take a mental break from the team. But being a fan, if you're listening to this, it's the good with the bad. It's easy to be a fan when they're winning 100 games. It's easy to do a radio show when they're winning 100 games. It's easy to do a radio show when there's some kind of off-season free agent controversy. You know when it's hard to do a radio show? It's hard when I come and tell you. I'm not going to yell and scream and demand you know, that they all go home and hang their heads in shame and you know, go, to, go to their rooms without supper. I'm not going to say that they should fire Buck and, and second-guess Billy Epler and yell about, if this was George, Steve Cohen needs to be like George and go and throw and yell and scream and miss him. There is no statement Cohen can make that's going to make Max Scherzer get two miles an hour on his fastball. There's no statement that Cohen can make that's going to scare McGill into being more efficient with his pitches. There's no statement that's going to make guys like Jimmy Acabonis or uh, Dominic Leone. Did I even say his name right? The guy's like j- jumping into the thing. I haven't even got a chance to get his name right. Uh, pitch after being overused in a short span of time. Pitch well. There's nothing you can do. So all you could do is sit back. And no, this is going to go one of two ways. It's going to get better, and they're going to kind of hang around the wild card and make a late run when things fall into place, which is what Buck and Billy Epler and their probabilistic outcome of what they believe will happen. And even if it doesn't quite go that way or goes somewhere in between, they're probably going to try to incorporate some of the kids that you've been screaming for, like Vientos and Mauricio, because it makes too much sense, and it's necessary for next year. Because I don't see this guy, these guys, regardless of what happens this year, packing up their tent and saying, oh, we're going to go for a three- to five-year rebuild where we're going to see 100, 105, 110 losses. They can't do that. They have to at least play competitively. Even if they're in the mid-80s and give the, the wild card run over the next few years, as long as they don't damage the future, they're going to do that. They're going to do that while they figured out, you know, free agency and the draft and everything like that. So that's what I got for you. No yelling, no screaming, not necessarily a message of patience, but a message of it's going to require patience to get to where you want this team to be, which is to incorporate these young kids and possibly write themselves to make a run at the wild card. Forget the division. Forget those delusions of grandeur that I think all of us in the back of our head after Diaz, after Carrasco, excuse me, after Correa, kind of knew it was going to get harder to beat the Braves. Now it's about understanding where you are and what a realistic pathway is for the rest of the 2023 season. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When I come back, Matt Harvey was the comment that came, saw, and went. He retired. I'm a little surprised after his performance in the WBC. He retired on Friday. Let's talk about Matt Harvey, some of my memories, what we learned from his career, and really how special that four aces, five aces, whatever you want to call it that everybody was talking about, was, and how hard it might be to recreate the kind of pitching riches the Mets have seen, not only this past 10 years, but dating back to other periods of dominance in their history. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? 
I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. He provided some of the most indelible moments of this Mets century. From his debut in Arizona, to pitching nine brilliant innings with a bloody nose, to starting the All-Star game in 2013... And then what could have been his signature moment after hitting Chase Utley in the back with a glare. Lots of celebrating in 2015. The ultimate celebration eluded Matt Harvey, but the memories remain. Matt announced his retirement today, and I couldn't help but feel a little bit sad. You know, when he came up in 2012, there wasn't a lot going on with this ball club, and he was a comet streaking across the Mets' sky. It's been a lot of attention paid to the way things ended with Matt Harvey. But for a couple of years, he gave the Met fans as many great memories as anybody in recent past. I'm with you, Gary. I, I, I just remember the, the excitement for to come to the ballpark as a person who's going to sit in the booth because you couldn't wait to see what was going to happen. In 2013, that bloody nose that you saw was in a game where he tired the first 20 hitters, and it looked like he was going to have the first no-hitter in Mets history. Later that year, he ended up with another no-hitter into the eighth inning, and two weeks later, he had the torn eight, uh, UCL uh, ligament and was going to be out for a couple of years. And then came back and might have had the greatest single year after Tommy John's surgery, gave it all for the Mets, including that game in the World Series. And in Game 5, pitched eight fabulous innings, asked for the ninth. It didn't work out. That was his last great moment as a Met, and things fell apart from there. But what he did was he reestablished the Mets as a pitching franchise, as a power-pitching franchise. And whatever happened afterward, off-the-field issues and uh, his body betraying him, Matt Harvey has a lot to be happy about as a New York Met. That's the, that'll be things he'll have to wrestle with as he gets older. But the key was, is you try to think back and put yourself back in time when he was on that bench and arguing with Terry Collins and went out for that ninth. That was one of the greatest moments this organization will ever have. And now at the age of 34, Matt Harvey has decided to hang it up. I know it's been a while for Matt Harvey. I'm still a little sad today. I loved him. And even though it was love-hate for a little while, I'll always love and appreciate him for what he did from 2012 through 2015. And for me, my favorite memory, and it was some good ones in there, obviously, but the first night, I remember sitting there watching the screen thinking, who the hell is this guy? Because it was not overhyped the way that it is with some prospects today. He came on the scene, and you knew immediately this dude was different, and he was about to dominate, and that will always be my favorite Matt Harvey moment. There were plenty, but seeing him for the first time was number one.
All right, we're back. I'm sure some of those moments as we were listening to Gary Cohen and Ron Darling talk about Matt Harvey, you heard a little bit from Sal Licata about his favorite moment, whether it be his debut, his 2015 postseason run, uh, his near no-hitters, you know, Harvey's better when he was pitching in Strasburg early in his career, whatever it would be, I'm sure you have a favorite Matt Harvey moment. And it's interesting that I, I when I, I was surprised that he was retiring when I heard it on Friday. And more importantly, I was surprised about how sentimental the Mets fans became about Harvey. And also the fact that the Mets broadcast even brought him up. Because, I mean, let's face it, Harvey left here under some not-so-great circumstances. It was injuries. It was thoracic outlet syndrome that did him in. It wasn't Tommy John. It was the TOS surgery that did him in. Once he had that shoulder surgery, he was pretty much on the decline. Very rarely does a pitcher come back. And if they are able to give you credible performance, like Chris Young, if you remember, now the GM of the Texas Rangers, they're doing it in a compromised, crafty manner. And that never was Matt Harvey. He was a bulldozer. He was a guy that threw hard, had bite to his pitches. And it's like Samson without his hair. Similar to Syndergaard in a lot of ways now. It's not the same type of pitcher. And I never believed he was a guy that could figure out how to pitch with less than his best stuff. I mean, Syndergaard has done it a little bit to give him credit. Harvey never was. But I figured, you know, even if he didn't get a, a an invite to a team, you know, like a Dylan Bundy did, uh, you know, maybe he goes to the Atlantic League. The fact that there was a sus- suspension for the drugs and the selling of the Percocet to Tyler Skaggs, I mean, I, you know, I know there was some that thought maybe the Mets should give him a look because of how bad the pitching has been. But knowing the history of Billy Epler and what Harvey did in Anaheim, hard to see that, hard to see the Mets bringing that kind of guy in. That, that let's face it, the biggest thing I remember about Matt Harvey, and this is going to be different than I think anybody else is going to tell you, is he came, he was a much-needed breath of fresh air during a time when the team was in complete purgatory. They did not, the Wilpons, because of their finances, could not invest in the 2010, 2011, 2012 Mets. And if you look at some of those teams, even if you go into 13 and 14, a little bit of investment, because there was some good veteran components to that team, may have been able to have them sneak into a wild card. So Harvey comes up. And I remember somebody who I really respect, who's a scout in the game, told me, and I always remember this, they were in the stands, I think they were behind home plate, watching Harvey that night in Arizona. He said, Mike, that's a Hall of Famer I saw. And I'm like, whoa. Now, look, at that time I was doing the NY Baseball Digest website. We did prospect stuff all the time. Harvey was a guy that was not coming up through the minor leagues, dominating anybody. And there was even talk, well, could he be a starter? Was he going to be maybe a reliever? So... My memory of Harvey is that he has this ascension and throughout the whole time when he was the dark knight and even after the Tommy John surgery coming back in 2015, all you kept hearing is he's going to have the richest contract in Mets history. He's going to go play for the Yankees. He's going to be the Mets version of Derek Jeter. And if he can't be the Mets version of Derek Jeter, he's going to go to the Yankees and get it. And I almost felt like there was this from Harvey before he got hurt his, I'm page six athlete. That's what he wanted to be. He didn't want to just be a great player. He wanted to be a page six athlete. And 
you know, cartoon moniker, the whole thing. And there was always this feeling of he's too good for the Mets. Mets fans like working-class superstars. They like Mike Piazza, a working-class superstar. They like David Wright, a working-class superstar. Even though David Wright could potentially be a page six, he wasn't really. Even though Piazza was a page six guy, he wasn't really. Like A-Rod, Jeter, those are page six guys. Judge, those are page six guys. It's almost like, you know, the Mets fans like stars that get their hands a little bit dirty. They're, you know, stars that are built up through hard work and, and performance. Like Jacob DeGrom, he was a star that came out of nowhere. But Matt Harvey was a page six athlete. And there was always this feeling that he was going to outgrow the Mets because he was going to get too expensive. He was going to want to go to bigger and better things. And because he wanted to be a real star, a star with a designer name, the Yankees was inevitably where he was going to go. And it never happened. And what was funny is by the time Matt Harvey's Mets career was over, the Mets were too good for Harvey. You know, between the 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 off-the-field stuff, which unfortunately probably involved drugs, we don't know for sure, but, you know, you saw what happened in Anaheim and, you know, who knows? There's always been rumors of stuff. We don't want to spread rumors here on the show, but there's always reasons for the late-night partying. There's components of late-night partying, which isn't just spiking the punch bowl, uh, to, you know, the decline, the precipitous decline that we saw almost immediately after the 2015 run. But I will give the man credit on one thing. And it always goes back to, and I said it, and at that time I wasn't doing a show in 2015, well, I was, but it wasn't a Mets-centric show. You only get certain – you always have to assume you only get one shot. I remember when the Mets were making that run in 2015. Everybody was like, well, the Mets have the pitching, the Cubs have the offense, and this is going to be the next five years these teams are going to be battling for the NLCS. Well, the Cubs got their title in 16, and they fizzled out after. The Mets got their pennant in 2015, and they fizzled out after, and it never happened. And there was talk about shutting Harvey down for the future – just like the Nats shut Strasburg down a few years earlier, and they blew that first-round series. Now, it was the bullpen that blew it, but who knows what happens if Strasburg's in it. Now, they'd get their title years later when Strasburg gave you the last sunshine out of that arm, but you never can take tomorrow for granted. You have to go for it. You have to be responsible. And I know everyone's saying, well, that's my big issue with Billy Upler. He didn't go for it last year. Well, guess what, guys? You wanted David Robertson? You probably had to give up one of these pitchers that we mentioned earlier in the program, like a Matt Allen. You know, that kind of type of pitcher. I know he's hurt now, but a top prospect at that to get David Robertson last year. You wanted to get Soto? You probably had to give up Beatty Alvarez plus. And at some point, you're going to make the same mistakes that other teams, like the Yankees, have made where, you know, you go out, you rip your farm system apart for a fix now, and then when you need that cost-controlled talent, it's not there. Now, you don't have it on the pitching side. I don't even know if you have it on the bullpen side. We'll see. They'll probably bring up, a, you know, another guy like a Hartwig who probably walks 1,000 batters per nine inning, throws hard, gets a lot of strikeouts, and maybe they'll, have, they'll get something out of someone like that. Maybe they're starting to develop bullpen arms, but we'll see. The walks are will remain to be seen with all the walks coming out of the organization. You don't have it on the pitching side, but you have it on the offensive side. you got a lot of interesting, not just Mauricio and... Vientos for the near term, Jet Williams, Kevin Parada. You got some interesting guys. Maybe they're trade chips. Maybe they're, uh, you know, Parada maybe winds up being the DH. Who knows? It's a shame that Vientos can't, um, you know, 
play some defense at uh, you know third base or first base of the outfield or something like that. But anyway, um, off track on Harvey. But that's really what I remember. Harvey too good for the Mets, and in the end, Mets were too good for him. And I've never seen an athlete go from the hubris and arrogance and the dislikability that at times Harvey was when he was doing the magazine cover naked to when I saw a video of him this past off season where he was on Instagram showing everybody his workout. And I think it was out in San Diego. He was out in the West Coast. And he was throwing 91-92. And I'm like, that's sad. He's, you know, he can't compete unless he, you know, really is crafty. Now, from what I heard, talking to someone who watched him pitch in the WBC, he has command. He's able to throw strikes. He doesn't throw hard. Nobody was interested in that version of Matt Harvey. And maybe Matt Harvey, deep down, because of the page six DNA that he has, couldn't handle putting on a Long Island Ducks uniform. Couldn't handle spending too much time down in Syracuse. But that's who he is right now. He's Dylan Bundy. He's 4A. You have to prove yourself. Now, let's say he retires and, you know, let's see a year from now. Guys like Harvey, especially a young guy, they could come back and get the itch a year, two years from now. But the minute you're out and you retire, the the, the game moves on. The game already moved on without Matt Harvey. And the game just moves on. So uh, it, that's really my Harvey memory, how one extreme, not from just performance, from his persona, the Dark Knight, Page Six, I'm too good. You know, I'm going to outgrow the Mets. I'm going to drag the Mets along on my back, and I'll outgrow the Mets too. Hey, we'll send you to the Reds for De- Devin Mazzarocco, who wasn't a bad catcher. Helped him out a little bit that year. But, you know, never in my life have I seen such a, a, a stark contrast. Very quickly. It's almost like Halley's Comet. Now, the other component of this Harvey thing that brought some – sentimentality to mind to me is you had Harvey, you had DeGrom, you had Syndergaard, and then you had Wheeler, more so as you got towards 2018, 2019, but you had three of those four guys for the run, and then you had Mats, and every one of those guys had an elite top of the rotation season. We saw what DeGrom did, we saw Syndergaard's in 2016, we saw what Harvey did, even Mats in 15 and 16, before he started to have some injuries, showed promise as a number three and a number two. And some thought he was even better than um, Syndergaard. He might have been better than than DeGrom. Some people had him pegged. At one point, at some point, uh, I guess it was 2019, maybe 2018, the Mets had like four of the top 20 starters in all of baseball in their starting rotation. I mean, think about what a powerful weapon that is. What used to undo them in those years, offense, which you had the offense you have now that you're complaining about. You would love that offense over the 2016 or maybe even the 2015 Mets offense. And then there's bullpen, you know, that kind of situation that, you know, potentially did them in. But really, the main point is what you saw was so special. Not just with Matt Harvey, but with all those guys. And think about how that rotation was built. Syndergaard and Wheeler were trades. I mean, think about how hard it would be to get a guy like Beltron on a, before free agency. Perfect situation. Giants needed offense. They were trying to uh, repeat as champions, and they they put Wheeler, their top pitching prospect, in the deal. Syndergaard wasn't even the number one uh, 
player in the Dickey trade. It was Darno. I mean, Syndergaard wasn't a throw-in, but you know he wasn't the primary piece. You didn't know how good he was going to be. And then the Grom is like an eleventh round pick. So you got to have a little bit of luck. You got to have some development. And if you go back, you know, to that this era, then you go back to the eighties. The Mets acquiring Sid Fernandez and Ron Darling and developing Doc and you know Aguilera and those guys. It, it's hard. And the Mets almost went from late 80s, early 90s, because the teams, the Piazza, lighter teams, those pitchers were imported. They were a lot of, you know, mid to back in the rotation veterans, the Kenny Rogers, the Yoshis, the Bobby Joneses of the world. And you had the anchor, which was lighter, and and Hampton. I mean, he was really out lighter. I mean, Al's getting inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame, well-deserved, but he was he was an import. He was a guy they, they acquired from the Marlins of the fire sale. It took the Mets nearly 30 years plus to rebuild homegrown pitching. I mean, the 06 Mets, Pedro, El Duque, those were imports. You know, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of luck. It takes a lot of development. It's hard. And what we had was special. What we were watching was special. You know, all the way up until DeGrom last season. Now he's gone, and what's left is a couple of these Hall of Famers that are imports that we're not sure are still Hall of Famers. And I don't see right now anybody in the system that reminds me of Harvey or Syndergaard or Wheeler or DeGrom, like the excitement about the pitching that we had those many years ago. A lot of excitement on offense, and historically that hasn't been the Mets' strength. It's been pitching. And pitching's expensive. The only good news out of all this is you've got an owner that could afford it. But when you import pitching... A lot could go wrong. We mentioned the Yankees with Randy Johnson and Kevin Brown and Carl Pavano, Javier Vasquez, on and on and on and on. Could happen to the Mets. It's It could happen. So a little bit of a different take on Matt Harvey, the sentimentality of the staff that was, how special that staff was, and then, of course, knowing how difficult it is to recreate that, which is such a big, you know, I'm a pitching and defense guy. And I'm not sure this current Mets front office and farm system has the ability right now to produce those kind of pitchers. I'm not sure, especially with the driveline component, which has brought a lot of skepticism on my end. But all you could do is sit back and watch, and let's see where they're at in the next year or two. They're going to have to still go out and buy some pitching. This offseason, they have to maybe buy some back end of the rotation pitching which is expensive. Look what Taiwan Walker got from the Phillies. And he's not even pitching like a, a number three. He's pitching like a really bad number five. So, you know, that's where we're at. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talk About Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Matt Harvey was a polarizing force during his time with the Mets. Jared Diamond, national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, shared his experience covering the Dark Knight on the Talking Mets podcast. Well, covering him in 2013 was absolutely remarkable it was so incredible and i think like like anyone else who saw him that year you thought you were looking at you know the next nolan ryan a guy that was gonna be around for a long time and be a perennial all-star and, and establish himself as one of the best pitchers in baseball the best pitchers of his generation so it just was it makes me sad looking back what happened to him and now that doesn't mean that it wasn't his fault. He did a lot of things wrong. He made a lot of mistakes. And I have no doubt that he would acknowledge that uh, now looking back. Uh, this was a tragedy that was certainly self-imposed 
in many ways with some bad decision making uh, by Matt Harvey, but he also had a lot of pressure put on him by the media, by fans. Uh, it's just sort of a sad story, and it's a shame that he will never be the player he could have been, the player perhaps he had a chance to be, and it's just another one of those baseball stories, those sort of what could have been stories. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. You know, one last thing on Matt Harvey. If you looked at baseball reference war for starting pitchers ages 21 to 27, he was like number nine. And if he hadn't missed 2014, very easily could have been in the top five. I mean, he was on pace. I mean, I remember they would do comparisons of like Harvey threw his first X number of starts. And he was right up there with like Seaver and Doc and then eventually became Jacob deGrom. So it was a special time. Give him a ton of credit for putting his health aside and pitching them into the World Series. They would not have made it to the World Series without him. I mean, that's for sure. And, you know, who knows the course of Mets history if Harvey decides to pull Strasburg and then gets hurt a couple of years later anyway, the kind of conversation we'd be having now. wonder if there would still be the same kind of sentimentality to Harvey. Very interesting how his retirement has been met with sadness. Not really anger, and I'm not angry either. I'm kind of over getting angry at Ball play results that make you sad. David Wright's career made you sad, not angry. Harvey's made you sad for different reasons. One guy did it to himself in some ways, not 100% in Harvey. And then the other guy just had, you know, a freak thing. It's called genetics. What are you going to do? So, anyway, uh, one other thing, and this is a really interesting tweet from our friend Ernie Dove. And he writes over on Twitter, one behind-the-scenes situation in Mets upper minors that due to all the Mets arms issues in the majors, it's leading to upper minors guys getting demoted or sent to the developmental list to make room for all the guys being brought in and shuttled to and from AAA to MLB right now. So that goes back to bad pitching. Has It's like a, it's like a disease. It just starts to overtake your entire organization bad starting pitching and has ramifications from the big league level on down. And that's exactly, that's exactly what's going on now. Not too many mailbags. You guys should, you know, I've gotten a little away from it, but if you guys ever want to send me a mailbag, Mike Silvat talking about podcast.com. No G Mike Silvat talking about podcast.com. But our friend Peter Williams writes, not panicking. Is it time to bring up Ronnie Mauricio play him at second, put McNeil on left. What do you think, Mike? Well, Peter, I, I think I addressed it earlier in the show. But right now, I think the key with Mauricio is he's learning a new position, second base. He clearly knows how to play shortstop. I think it would be in the best interest of Mauricio, whether he's with the Mets or another team, to learn as many positions as possible, just like McNeil. Why not have a guy who could be like McNeil, play the corner outfield and second and short? I mean, that's the real thing. When Dor goes down... It's a big drop-off in performance. I know you're probably all laughing because Lindor hasn't been great so far this season. It, good in, Normal in certain areas, not so good in others. Let's put it that way. And Mauricio would be an easy stopgap. I mean, I, the only way I see Mauricio come up before September is if Lindor gets hurt. I really think they're going to have him spend the majority of the season down there unless they see him play second base 
Maybe if McNeil gets hurt, I'll put that out there too, potentially as well to play second base. Um, I just don't see that, you know. And then you think long term with Mauricio, a young guy. You know, Lindor is signed here forever. I mean, eventually his range and his body is going to start to betray him. You have a guy that maybe Lindor switches over to second as he gets older and Mauricio goes to short. Way cart before the horse. But the bottom line, Peter, I don't see Mauricio getting brought up. I think Vientos would be. I don't think they just dump Vogel back. I think they would trade him. Vientos just doesn't fit because he doesn't play the field. You're not going to – I mean, the only guy you could potentially replace him with is Escobar. And I'm just not – I don't think they're ready to take that kind of veteran out of the lineup. Uh, I know they played him at second. I mean, Escobar is showing you that second is really not. I mean, he made a terrible play where he broke the wrong way on a grounder yesterday. And, you know, he could hit lefties a little bit. Uh, but right now, with the way Beatty's hitting lefties, righties, and the importance of having him in the middle of the order, I just don't see a role for Escobar. So perhaps that's where Vientos gets his call up. But like Billy Epler said on Friday, do you want to call him up and then have him sit on a bench? Uh, even if, you know, I guess you could put him in as the DH at that point and sit Vogel back or have some sort of platoon, uh, but they don't want that. I don't think the guy has anything left to prove at AAA. We know that. How much of what you see him slugging in AAA, and I know Brody, he's his agent, a salesman till the end, Brody's selling him on Twitter with his, you know, hard hit rate and all that stuff, wants him in there, but uh, I think Vientos will get called up, and and I think that, you know, might happen in the first half. Mauricio, I think, gets maybe called up in September as a reward for a good season. But I don't even know how that impacts the clock on arbitration and everything like that. I don't think it would in September. But that's the earliest I see. But I could be wrong. An injury to Lindor, an injury to McNeil. Offense gets really ugly. They fall out of it. A lot of things could happen. If they're meandering like they were in 2019 at the deadline when they were below 500. You know, maybe they do one of those retool type of deadlines where they trade some veterans that they could trade. Uh, and then they have the kids kind of play the rest of the season. And then you go out and you go get them in, uh, in 2024. So we'll see. So anyway, that's all I have for you guys. Hope you enjoyed this latest edition of the Talking Mets podcast. The anatomy of a 500 team. The fact that we're here on May 7th, almost waving the white flag on the division. Talk about the Mets being a 500 team and a team that right now is more likely to have to compete and sneak into the playoffs than a team that's going to be one of the best in baseball is a crazy thing to think about. Um, but that's where we're at, and I deal with the here and the now and the reality, not what I want the reality to be, and there's no screaming and yelling. There's no firing. All that is noise. That's that's noise to make you feel better. And then five minutes later, you're still in the same damn position. So what have you accomplished? That's not what this show's all about. So hopefully you enjoyed my perspective on the Mets at this point. We're still getting to know the Mets. I believe we know who they are. I outlined that in the open. Let's hope uh, I'm wrong. And really over the next couple of weeks as we really, really need to see some movement on this team and the positive going into Memorial Day, uh, Verlander and Scherzer are really the key because without them, there is no scenario where I see the Mets making the playoffs. None. I don't even know if they could finish 500. They're probably a mid-70s team at that point at best. And um, that's a, that probably is the scariest thing, the sobering nature of that, because he's actually signed for another year at $47 million shares unless he decides to hang it up. So it'll be really interesting to see. A competitor like Scherzer 
is going to try to find a way. But if the body's saying I don't have it anymore, that's a different ballgame. All right, that's it. Thanks for tuning in to the latest edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope everybody has a good rest of the weekend. We'll be back with the Talking Mets Podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.